you all can be seated. Uh, you can open up your copy of the scriptures to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to attempt to tackle this whole chapter uh, here in just a few moments. Um, I just want to say this has nothing to do with the sermon, but I was just reminded this week of how thankful I am to be part of this family. Uh, there's been a lot that we're dealing with in our family and our extended family and then a lot that I know is going on in many of your lives and just been thankful and honored again uh, to be part of you and to have you be part of me and my family's life and, and I wanted you to know uh, how thankful I am and express that to you. Um, we're going to start this text in just a moment. If you were here last Sunday, uh, I introduced that we're going to try. Uh, this is not mandatory remotely for anybody, but we're going to try as a church family to memorize a, a chunk of a few verses together from the book of Deuteronomy uh, over the next few months. As we go through this book of the Bible, we pick some of the more famous, more significant, if you can even say that, about parts of Scripture. Uh, one of the more significant parts of the book of Deuteronomy, and we're, we're trying to memorize it together slowly over the next few months. So we read it all together last week. I'm going to have us just do that again. Uh, just the best way to memorize stuff is just keep saying it again, again, and again, uh, in my opinion. So we're going to have this on the screen, and we're going to read it again. We did this. This is on purpose, repetition, uh, redundancy from last week. And so we're going to read these verses, and then I would encourage you uh, to take up the task uh, as an individual or in your dorm room or your apartment or your family, um, and to try to memorize these together over the next few months while we're in this book of the Bible. So this, this is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 7. So I just want us to read it together, and then we'll uh, turn to this specific text, Deuteronomy 13. So let's read this together, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Thank you for reading that together. I encourage you, if you want to grab, there's a little index card-sized uh, paper out at our resource center or bookstore. If you want to grab one of those, put it somewhere prominent uh, to help you learn this text. I think you'll be glad that you did. It's a wonderful text to get in our hearts and help us even do what it even commands. Uh, so it, it helps us uh, in that way. I want to make sure as we turn the corner to Deuteronomy 13 today that you know what a certain word means because I'm probably going to use it several times because I think it's what is being described in this text. It's a word uh, that we probably have heard but we maybe don't use a lot so we might not know exactly what it means. We just kind of know in general but it, it is the word sedition. Some of you know exactly what that means. Some of you don't. If you don't, uh, this is Merriam-Webster's definition of what sedition is. Uh, it's kind of a mouthful, but I think this is accurate. They, they describe sedition as the incitement of resistance to or insurrection against lawful authority. So it's this idea that there's some lawful authority that, that we're responsible to follow, to do what they command us to do. But sedition is when a person or a group of people either incite resistance to that authority or they lead an insurrection against that authority, right? That's what sedition is. It's trying to undermine a lawful authority. And I wanted to mention that word because what we're going to see described in Deuteronomy 13 and what I think the Lord would want to speak to us through it this morning uh, is what I would call spiritual sedition. 
spiritual sedition, that there's this authority, our creator, our savior, uh, who has made us, and if we're part of his people, has saved us, and we're responsible to him. He, above all else, is the authority that we are responsible to. But often in our lives, there are people, and maybe sometimes we become this person, who try to lead us or lead other people into rebellion against him who are brazen enough to to call for resistance to that authority, of resistance to God, and to lead others to join them in it. So there's this act of spiritual sedition that we're going to see described here, and that Moses and and God himself, I think, to us, would caution us uh, to be aware of. And I think this is important because as human beings, I would say we have always struggled with responding to spiritual sedition, like from the Garden of Eden on. Right? If you think about what happened in the Garden of Eden, if you read Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were there. This is before human sin, before the fall of the world, before death. This serpent comes to them, right? And what does he do if not spiritual sedition? Like he tempts them. Uh, they know there's this authority, their creator God. He tempts them to defy him, to, to go against the commands of their authority. And there's this act of spiritual sedition, this baiting, this tempting of them, And how does Adam respond to that spiritual sedition? He responds with silence. First of all, he does nothing to shut the serpent up. He does nothing to counteract it, to speak back to it. He passively listens, and him and Eve sink into sin. They join the ranks of this serpent in their rebellion against the one true authority. And what we learn from that very first text, and we're going to see commanded even in today's text, is that spiritual sedition cannot be met with silence. And it cannot be met with passivity. Like when there are people who are calling other people to defy God, to undermine him, to rebel against him, we cannot respond like Adam did, with silence and with passivity. There's action that must be taken to confront that, to combat that, uh, when it takes place. And so we're going to read this text here in just a moment. It's an ancient text. We've been going through this book of Deuteronomy for a while. It was written thousands of years ago. Uh, But this book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 13 in specific, it's going to feel foreign to us. I guarantee that. I will prime the pump for you or prep you for this. I would guess as I read this here in a moment that it may even feel barbaric to some of us. Like not just foreign, but almost like inappropriate or barbaric. We may feel like Moses, we're going to see that he anticipates this spiritual sedition, this undermining of God's authority in the life of the Israelites. And he is going to command them, the Israelites, about how to deal with that spiritual sedition in some pretty stark, strong ways that may bristle us. Um, But I, I want to encourage us, even though that these verses, these commands are not going to be binding upon us as Christians in the New Covenant, they are still principles in this text that are relevant for us. Things that God intends for us to learn and do in light of this text today. Um, Because God always, since this day, since the Garden of Eden, even to today, God always cares about the, the faithfulness of the community of his people to himself. He cares deeply about our allegiance to him and cares deeply when that is undermined and when people start to slip into spiritual sedition. 
So Deuteronomy, if you've not been with us, I'll just briefly catch you up to speed and then we'll finally read this. The book of Deuteronomy is like a written transcript, a long written transcript of sorts of a, a speech or maybe a couple that Moses gave that were like a farewell address of his to the nation of Israel. So he's about to die. He knows it. They're about to go into the promised land. He knows that. And he's trying to prep them for that. It's this farewell speech that he gives to them. But in its written form, as we read it, it's also kind of like an ancient treaty of sorts, like a document that would have been written between a ruler and his sub-rulers or his subjects about how they're going to relate to each other, how, what sort of guidelines they have of relating to each other. And we're in this section of this treaty between God and the Israelites, this covenant document, where Moses, on behalf of God, is giving them specific stipulations, specific rules, like this is what you do in this situation, this is what you don't do, this is how you do it. He's providing them again with guidance. And Moses, in this chapter, is going to address these situations he anticipates that they'll face in the land of spiritual sedition. Where even amongst the ranks of the Israelites, there's going to be people who call fellow Israelites to wander away from God and to undermine him. And Moses is going to give them three examples of this and tell them how to respond. Okay? That's what we're going to read. Deuteronomy chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18, and then we'll walk back through this text. So follow along with me, Deuteronomy 13. Moses continues his speech by saying this. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder... And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass? And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far from you, from the one end of the earth to the other. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, as certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction. 
all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. This is a a heavy text. This is one, uh, if you're not preaching through books of the Bible, you would not typically pick this uh, to preach. Uh, But it is part of God's word to us and for us. Uh, I want us to walk back through it. I want to try to explain the text as best as I can, what Moses was saying to these people and why uh, there was such a strong reaction. Then I want to try to help build a bridge to our lives today. And see, what difference does this make for us? Uh, what, what, how should this affect the way that we live our life? And so first I want to walk through the text and try to explain what it's saying, like what it's communicating, what was going on, okay? Uh, your text probably has three paragraphs in it, I'm guessing, if you pay attention to those things. Moses is describing three scenarios that he's anticipating as they go into the land, as they finally enter into that promised land. Uh, He's imagining these three scenarios, and the common thread between the three, which is probably obvious to you as we read it, uh, was this, is that he's imagining Israelites tempting fellow Israelites to follow after other gods, right? That's the basic summary, the basic common thread. An Israelite tempting or, or asking another Israelite to join them in worshiping Canaanite gods. And there's common language that that Moses uses. Remember, this would have been a speech, so there's repetition in it. There's common language he uses in all three scenarios, right? Like if you look at verses 2, verse 6, and verse 13, Moses puts very similar words into the mouths of the people, these spiritual, uh, I don't know what that noun is for people who are committing sedition, but he puts these similar words into their mouths, right? So look at verse 2. He's imagining in that scenario the person saying, Let us go after other gods, right? That's what they're saying to their fellow Israelites. Let us go after other gods. If you look at verse 6, he's imagining this scenario of a a close friend or family member. And near the end of that verse, he puts those words into that person's mouth where they say to their fellow Israelite, let us go and serve other gods, right? Then if you go down to verse 13, in that final scenario that Moses is imagining, he's imagining these worthless fellows, which is quite the title, uh, calling them and the inhabitants of their city. He's imagining that it's already taken place, but if you look at the end of verse 13, he's put in, in their mouth, let us go and serve other gods, right? So that's the, the common thread. He's imagining these scenarios, Israelites telling other Israelites, let's go and serve other gods. I would note here that these people in each of these situations, it doesn't seem like Moses is anticipating that they'll be so brazen as to say, let's stop worshiping Yahweh, but that they're calling them to expand their allegiances, to broaden the objects of their worship, right? To to add more gods into their worship. They're, They're calling them to go and serve additional gods even, I would suggest. But this temptation, Moses breaks it down, even though it's the same thread of spiritual sedition, Moses breaks it into three scenarios, right? Three kind of real life pictures of where they may face this, 
right? The unique channels that that temptation to defy God will come through. And I would just note here that Satan has many strategies, right? To try to lead us astray. Like if he comes to the front door and it's locked, he doesn't just give up, right? He tries the back door, tries the windows. There's different ways that Satan tries to tempt us to defy God and to leave him. And you see that even in this text, this sedition can come through different channels. So the first one, the first paragraph, what he's imagining is this temptation, this sedition happening by people that we may call like religious leaders. He calls them prophets or dreamers of dreams, right? And he's even imagining these people, these spokespeople on behalf of God or these people with these visions and dreams. He's imagining even a scenario where even a step further, they maybe even are able to do signs or wonders, some sort of either a prediction or an action, like something that, get, that really they predict and does take place or some sort of sign that they do that shows supernatural ties or a capacity. He's imagining people like that who would have held sway in the community of the Israelites who then from that place of prominence and respect who say, now that you're listening to me, let's add these other gods on too. Imagine what they could give us. Like if we broaden our horizons of who we worship. So there's, it could come through religious leaders. The middle section, the second scenario, it comes from family members or close friends, right? Like he's imagining uh, a sibling, a child, a spouse or a close friend, right? He's imagining one of those types of people for the Israelites coming to them, and he even says that they will secretly entice them in verse 6. That's the language he uses, that they'll secretly, privately entice their family members, their husband, their wife, their dad, their, their uh, best friend. They're going to entice them to join them in the service of other gods. They might not do it flagrantly, publicly, but they're going to do it discreetly and private and say, join me in this. Like, look at this thing that I found. The third situation that he anticipates is this situation where maybe those more private acts of sedition uh, have actually been followed and caved into and now he's imagining this whole city has started to rebel against God and started to worship almost collectively uh, a, a pantheon of false gods right that, that they don't just worship Yahweh anymore but this whole city has started to worship false gods and so Moses anticipates these three scenarios but the common thread is spiritual sedition let us go and serve other gods Right? And Moses tells them in this text how to respond to that, how to respond to those temptations that come to them. If you look at verses 3 and 4, uh, he gives them this initial command uh, that would be just like an absolute baseline, right? Like in verse 3, he says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, right? So don't listen to them. That's the basic. Don't listen to them. And then the flip side, verse 4, he tells them positively the things he says in Deuteronomy again and again and again. He says to walk after the Lord, fear him, keep his commands, obey his voice, serve him, hold fast to him. So they're not to listen to these people who are committing sedition, but they are to listen to Yahweh. They're to stay faithful to him, to listen to him. But the main, so the first command is don't listen to them. If that's all that he said, we could think, okay, silence, passivity, that's an okay response. As long as I don't listen to them, as long as I close my ears uh, like a, a, an annoyed sibling or something, as long as I just close my ears and don't listen, that's sufficient. Like, deal is done, don't need to worry about it. But he expands this as this chapter goes on, doesn't he? In the second scenario, he says a lot more than just don't listen to them. 
right? He says that in verse 8 when he's imagining this family member or friend. In verse 8 he says, you shall not yield to him or listen to him. But then he expands the response, doesn't he? He says, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. And we'll get to the the killing in just a moment because I know that is incredibly heavy for us. But I just know in that situation, he's expanding the response. Silence is not enough. But he's after our own hearts and responding this, to this sedition to say, it's not enough just to not listen, but you need to, to refuse them. You need to not pity them. You need to not spare them, which implies that there's consequence. There's reaction that's going to come to this person. And don't conceal them. Don't try to hide them from what's about to come. Right? So he's expanding the response. And then by the time that you get to that second situation and to the third, it's clear that actually even in the first one, it's just more expanded as the second and third come. That ultimate, the ultimate response of God's people to spiritual sedition in their ranks is not just closing their ears, but it is taking the life of this person. Taking the life of these people. And it intensifies, right? As in the first situation, he kind of indirectly says this about death. In verse 5, he says, that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. It doesn't say by who, it doesn't say how, it just says death should come to them, right? The second scenario, he he intensifies it and he talks about stoning this person to death. He even says to this, the, the close friend or family member, for them to be the first one to throw the stone, right? Their involvement is to be active in it. And then by the time you get to the full-fledged sedition and insurrection in the third situation, they are collectively to take the sword to this city and to to even burn it, burn the entirety of the city. And you see that in verses 15 through 16. Excuse me. So the, the response intensifies as you go through this text. And I would note this capital punishment, this death penalty for the sin of spiritual sedition, this bristles against our sensibilities today, doesn't it? I would guess for most of us in the room, as we read that, our heart may be tempted to think, like like I said at the beginning, that that is barbaric. Like that is just a sign of like primitive humanity who hadn't yet figured some of the things out that we have figured out about in civilized society. Or it may even go so far when we remember that God said this, to say, well, that's not the God I know. Like, that's the God of the Old Testament. Like, we serve a different God. We serve a gentler God. But I I would know for us, when those sorts of temptations rise up within us, to remember that these are not just the words of Moses, right? These are the words of God. Like, these are things that God had Moses speak, and that the Spirit of God inspired to be written for God's people. These are God's words. And when our sensibilities bristle with the things that we see commanded in scripture our default this should be true in reading any part of scripture our default should not to be to think my sensibilities are correct god's must be wrong right but that's what we do a lot of time we think i have more enlightenment than what these ancient writers did so my opinion i need to find a way to read these texts to fit with what i assume to be true rather than thinking no god is the determiner of truth 
And when he says something, we seek to conform our understanding to his, not his to ours, right? And so we have to do that with a text like this. We have to humble ourselves and think, what is going on? This may grate against me, but I want to understand what God was saying. Like, what, why this? Like, what was happening here? And I think if, if we know a few things, not that this will totally resolve every bristling that we feel in our hearts but a few things I want to remind you about this situation and what it was spoken into that'll help I think understand why capital punishment was the penalty would be these and I wish I could just elaborate a bunch on these things but but three things to remember that would make sense of this text at least a bit the first one would be that I think we need to remember the nature of this covenant and what, what I mean by that is, this, remember, this was like a treaty. This is a document that was defining this relationship between God and his people, this covenant between God and his people. And this covenant, this document, this treaty is very different from how we relate to God today, the, the covenant that we're part of today. Uh, this covenant was one, if you've been with us as we've gone through Deuteronomy, you've seen this, and you'll see it again in weeks to come. In this covenant, there was a ton of language. You even see it in the, implied in the very last verse of today's text. There's tons of language again and again about blessing and curse, right? And that if God's people obey him in this covenant, if God's people obey him as they go into the land, God is going to bless. God is going to bring them security and stability as a nation. He commits himself to that if they will obey him with their whole hearts, right? We see that again and again. But the, the flip side of that is he tells them again and again, if you defy me, if you break this covenant, curse is coming upon you. And not just individually, it is coming upon y'all. Like it is coming upon the nation, right? If, if we defy God, judgment is coming toward us as a nation. And so the people in this covenant did not have the luxury of when, some, when there's an individual, a loved one or a friend or a religious leader or someone, when they see them drifting from Yahweh, when they see them drifting away from him and giving into this sedition, they did not have the luxury to just let that person set out to sea, right? To just let them receive the reward for their own, for their own dis, the disobedience and rebellion, right? They, they had to have a communal mindset to say this person's sin is going to affect all of us. Like it is going to bring us all down. God has told us curse will come to us if we disobey. And so it's important that we remember that. That at least starts to get us thinking why they would take this so seriously when there was sin within their ranks as Israelites, right? So the nature of the covenant is important to remember. I'd say also to remember the nature of sin itself is important, right? Stated the simplest way I could think to say it is Sin spreads, right? Like sin is contagious. Sin is not benign. Like it is malignant, right? Like sin doesn't just stay contained in one person. It doesn't just stay contained in one group. It spreads. And when you see it even in this text today, don't you? What does is, what is he put in the mouths of every one of those hypothetical people it's not just that they are worshiping other gods, right? It's that they're telling other people to join them in it, right? That is what the problem is, that sin never just stays contained. We are interconnected beings, and when we fall into sin, we inevitably lead others to. We tempt others to, and Moses knew that. He had seen it happen amongst the Israelites. He had seen it happen in the human race. We have seen it happen in our lives, that sin spreads, 
It has to be dealt with. It has to be confronted or it will continue to spread. And the third thing I think that we need to remember, and again, this will not totally satisfy every question or or bristle that is within our heart, but the third thing I think that we need to remember is the holiness and the justice of God. The holiness and the justice of God. God demands worship and God deserves worship, right? He demands it and he deserves it. And when we as human beings, when we see other fellow human beings not providing that to God, we cannot respond. We should not respond to that with just a wink and a a pat on the back or just an ignoring of that, right? Like because we need to remember how serious sin is. Like we do not think about this enough. We do not meditate upon this enough to understand just how vile sin is when we remember how holy our God is, right? God says in verse 17 here, he, he talks about his anger toward these sinful people who have walked away from him. He talks about it as not just being anger, but fierce anger. Like God hates sin. He hates rebellion. And in his justice, he can't just wink at it. He can't just forgive it with just sheer mercy and, and pretend it never happened. He is a just God who must deal with it. And th- these are people he has saved. These are people he has rescued. These are people, they are not like neutral toward him. He has rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. He mentions that a couple times in this text. And even still, they defy him. They stiff arm him, right? They they are rejecting their very savior. And we need to remember the holiness and the justice of God and the seriousness of sin. And I would suggest to you, although it's not this simplistic, that our aversion to capital punishment in situations like this may not be a sign so much of our moral sensibility and sensitivity that we often think we have, but it may be a sign of our moral dullness. Like we do not understand the magnitude of the offense of our sin against God. And, And texts like this should make us pause and think, maybe I underestimate. Like maybe I need to take sins more seriously in my life and the life of my fellow human beings, right? It may not be that we value life so much that we bristle at this, but that we value God's glory so little. And that this text should challenge us to believe that and to really grasp the gravity of their sin and of our sin, of mine and yours, right? I know that doesn't answer every question, but it at least gives us some understanding of what's happening and why capital punishment is such the response here, why this response is so severe. But we don't do these things, do we? I don't want you to be nervous. We don't have a pile of stones we hold uh, back for people who, who defy God. We don't have swords that we break out as part of church discipline, any things like this. We don't do these things, right? But why? Like, why don't we? I don't know if you've thought about that before. Why don't we do these things? The simple answer would be that God has established a new covenant with his people. Uh, This is often referred to as the Mosaic covenant or the old covenant. God has now established through Jesus a new covenant with his people. And the glory, one of the glorious things of this new covenant that we can be part of and that many of us are part of is that God has already dealt with the sins of his people, right? He has already dealt with them as as part of this agreement in the new covenant. And the way that he did that was by sending his son Jesus, by God the son becoming a human being like us, even coming under the law 
and then doing what none of us could do, obeying it perfectly, doing exactly what was commanded in it. He, it's not that he didn't experience the temptation of sedition, right? It's that he resisted it. He, he, he pushed back against it time and time again, obeying the Heavenly Father every time. He deserved no stones, right? He deserved no swords. He deserved no fire from his fellow human beings or from God. Right? He deserved nothing like that. But at the cross, the cross of Christ at the end of his life, Jesus took the sins, the sedition and the disobedience and the rebellion of people like us and people even who had preceded him in life. He took our sin upon himself and in doing that, then he did bear metaphorically the stones and the sword and the fire from God the Father. These judgments that should have been coming down from God the Father upon us instead came down upon Christ fully. He bore it in our place. God was dealing with our sin at that moment, at the cross. And he suffered the fullness of God's wrath for our sin. And then after a few days in the tomb, God the Father raised him back from the dead to show that that sacrifice was sufficient, that his wrath had been fully laid out upon Christ so that it would not come down upon us. So our sin in this new covenant has already been dealt with. And in this new arrangement between God and his people, he invites us to come to him not on the grounds of law-keeping, and our own purity, but to come to him on the merits of Jesus, uh, that Jesus has lived a righteous life, and that Jesus has borne the stones, like he has taken the sword, he has taken the fire for me from God the Father, and he invites guilty traitors like us to come to him and receive forgiveness free and clear forever. That is the nature of the new covenant, is that our sin has already been dealt with in the most severe way possible. And my prayer today for some of you who have not yet received that forgiveness, who have not yet entered into that new covenant, is that what is described near the end of this text in verse 17 where God talks about turning from the fierceness of his anger and showing instead mercy and compassion upon you. My prayer is that today that would happen in your life. That, that even if you entered into this room today as a rebel against God, committing sedition, giving into it yourself, that you would know Christ has died in my place for those things. And my sin has been dealt with and God will forgive me and receive me if I turn to him in faith, if I turn from my sin. If you do that today, God will turn from his fierce anger to you and give you instead compassion and grace and mercy. And my prayer is that that would happen to you today. And if that has already happened in your life and you're part of that new covenant, I want your heart to rejoice I want your heart to be thrilled that you don't need to fear the stones and the swords and the fire from your fellow human beings and that you don't need to fear the even grander stones and sword and fire from heaven, right? That has already been laid down upon Christ that you would know nothing but grace and mercy and welcome as glorious. Maybe never forget that. So what does this have to do with us in real life tangible situations today? I, I want to give a few simple ideas uh, to at least get the wheels turning in your mind of how I think this text comes to bear on us today. Because in this new covenant, this new arrangement that God has uh, with us as his people, we still are called to total allegiance to him, right? We're still called to that. It's not as if, well, because our sin's been dealt with, we can just serve whatever, whatever gods we want. We can go serve this God and do this thing. We are still called uh, to total allegiance to God. And I would summarize the message this way, and I'll give a couple brief examples. 
and I think this will be on the screen, I, I would apply this text today this way, is that as the people of God, we must actively and sometimes painfully maintain the purity of our community's allegiance to Christ. We are called to that. Uh, we are not to be passive in today's world when sedition comes. We are not to be passive and silent. We are to be active in trying to maintain the purity of our community's allegiance to Christ. And I, I want to show, share briefly three ways that I think we can do that and that we need to, to do that. The first one flowing from this first scenario today would be that we need to resist the temptation to follow after religious leaders who lead us away from Christ because that still does happen. Uh, there were these dreamers and prophets, right, who seemed trustworthy, who seemed right, and people just kind of blindly followed them into worship of false gods. And that still happens today. It is still a temptation today. That's still uh, an avenue Satan tries to use people who have spiritual clout, religious clout, and to use them to lead people away from his son. And I would just say this. Even when we see supposed fruit in a person's ministry, even when they say things or do things that are impressive, even if they predict things that come true, even if God somehow works supernatural things through them, like healings or, or things like that, even if those things come, we are still to test what they say by the word of God. That was what the fault was here with these people in this first scenario is that they were so swept up in who this person is and what they showed, what they saw with their eyes that they forgot to evaluate them with their ears. To say, does what this person is saying match with what God has already said? And we must be careful to do that as a church because supernatural signs mean nothing if they help spread lies. If anything, they are a danger that we must be aware of and so resist teachers I hope they will never come from this pulpit but even if they do I will say that even if they do come through this pulpit resist teachers who try to preach Christ but then also simultaneously lead you to worship of other gods as well other functional gods that instead of exalting Christ they would teach you to, to love money and to pursue fame and to, to grasp after wealth and fortune and popularity all these sorts of things if they are leading you after functional false gods you shall not listen to them I so appreciate Jake even sharing something this morning even when we have people share things that they feel led by the spirit of God to share we always will test it by the word of God we don't just believe things because somebody feels led to share because somebody is impressive as a person we believe things as they correspond to the word of God amen we must always do that second thing this is a personal one I want to walk carefully but I want to be clear on this is I want you I want to encourage you and challenge you to resist the spiritual sedition that comes through your family this happens a lot this happens maybe more than people realize I've seen this happen as a pastor a lot there are certain convictions that believers have that are true that are right about the scriptures about things that God has said but when there is a son when there is a daughter when there is a close friend who has bought into things that are false, that, that are bought into belief, ways of viewing the world and their life that defy the scriptures and then call that loved one to, to join them in believing it's okay and to even celebrate it, it is so tempting. And some of you are living this right now. It is so tempting to want so badly to preserve the relationship with that person that you are willing to compromise or accommodate your viewpoints to preserve it. 
and we must not do that. Like, we, we cannot do that. That is not healthy for that person. It is not healthy for us. If we, we say peace, peace, when there is no peace. And if we say this is okay for you, even though the word says this, I'm sure God is okay with that. That is dangerous. That, that is not how we should operate. And I, I see this most prominently in the realm of sexuality in today's world. There have been many people that I have known whose child starts to believe that, that the practicing of a homosexual relationship or even a, a same-sex union, that that is okay for them. That, that, that is how God is leading them. And the, the parent is so tempted. I've, I've seen this happen with people I love. To want to affirm, to want to approve of this child, to want to preserve holidays, to want to, to keep ties, that instead of lovingly, patiently saying, son or daughter, like, I can't affirm that. Like, I can't celebrate that. Like, this is what the Lord says, even when it grates against us. Instead of doing that, they either slip to silence or even a tacit approval of that. And it is not a far step if we start to twist the scriptures to justify sin in other people's life till we start to do it in our own. Like either the word of God governs us even when it grates against us or it doesn't. It either governs everything we do, even the lives of our loved ones, or it governs nothing. We don't get to just pick and choose. When there's sedition that comes even through family, we have to resist it. And the third and last way, I think, to apply this text, and there's much that could be said about this, is I think as church members, we need to be committed to a healthy practice of church discipline. Church discipline has fallen on hard times. It is not a common thing. It is certainly not a popular thing uh, in churches today. But church discipline is important. It's a vital part of a healthy church and congregation and we don't, in the New Covenant and as a New Testament church, we don't confront people who are in sin with stones and with swords, right, and with fire. That's not what we confront each other with when we know that there's sin among us. But we do confront each other. We do address sin that is present among the camp, that is, that is present in our lives. The Apostle Paul, in the letter we call 1 Corinthians, you read that letter, he quotes Deuteronomy 13 when he's writing to this New Testament church and quotes verse 5 to them, that you shall purge the evil from your midst. Written to a New Testament church, the Apostle Paul quotes Deuteronomy 13. Purge the evil from your midst. And this is important for us to do. And instead of coming with stones and swords and fire, what we come toward each other with first is scripture, right? And then we come with grace, come with humility, come with patience right and we come with objectivity and due process right like i appreciate in verse 14 he, he he encouraged them to make sure these things are true not be hasty to just to seek vengeance or to embarrass someone but we come with objectivity and due diligence and the reason we practice church discipline isn't just because we think it's a good thing to do but it's because jesus told us to do it like Jesus commanded us to practice it. Read Matthew 18. It's the clearest text. He taught us to start privately when there's sin amongst us with fellow believers. Start privately, individually. Call them to repent. If they don't, then you involve other people. You expand the circle to, to lovingly talk with his brother or sister, to seek to, to come to them with scripture to persuade them to repent. And if they continue to not, the circle expands and eventually can lead to the involvement of the collective congregation. 
not to shame, not to embarrass, but to call them to repentance. And if they don't, then there is ultimately where it can culminate is not in taking their life, but in excommunicating them, telling them very clearly, we can no longer, brother or sister, recognize you as a part of this community. Like you are not operating in accord with how God calls us to live, and we are going to treat you as such, not with shame and embarrassment. We don't shun people as a church, but we do sometimes excommunicate, and we continue to go after that person with the gospel and say, brother or sister, please turn back to the Lord. The goal is never to just get rid of people. The goal in church discipline is to restore people and see them one back, and that has happened in the life of our church. That is, God has used that process to bring people back to repentance and faith and is a beautiful thing it can and does work and we may think when we see sin in people's life we may think that it is virtuous to just bite our tongue to just to just let it happen we may think that's the gracious christian thing to do is just to to not like who am i to go do that who like let he who's without sin cast the first stone like jesus says like i can't do that but jesus commands us to The same Jesus who said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone told us how to do church discipline, right? Like there is a way to do it if we follow the Lord's guidance. I mentioned Adam and Eve at the beginning. I'll close with this. I mentioned Adam and Eve at the beginning. Adam and Eve's son, uh, well, I'll say this, their sin spread quickly and had had deep roots. One of their sons even became a murderer, Right? You read Genesis chapter 4, the very next chapter after sin, Cain kills Abel. Not for noble reasons, not to, because sedition was taking place, but because of hate that was in his heart, because of jealousy of Abel. He, and when God confronts him, he asked God, I think, a fairly fascinating question, and I, I don't know what Tony said it with, but he asked God, when God asked him, where's your brother? He asked him this question, he said, am I my brother's keeper? Like, I don't know the tone, probably with rudeness or or snark in his voice or condescension, that sedition rising up within him. And God doesn't really directly answer his question, but I think that the answer that God would give if Cain asked that again, or if we asked that, am I my brother's keeper, is that you should have been. Like you were supposed to be. Like that was your responsibility as a brother, as a fellow human being, was not to, to come after him with aggression, but to live with him and work together when there's sin and struggle in your life. Because God made us as human beings, and especially as Christians, he made us, he saved us, in part to have us look after each other, to be his hands and feet, to, to preserve godliness in our lives, to, to squash sedition that rises up within us or rises up within them God saves us into a spiritual family and while we are not ever to think of ourselves as each other's savior or each other's judge I would say I think we are to be each other's keeper like we are to look after each other we are to try to protect each other even from ourselves. and God can help us to do that right he, he enables us to do that uh, it's not just that we should have been each other's keepers but that we can be right by the help of the spirit i'm gonna invite you to stand i'm gonna pray for us we're gonna sing a closing song and i'll leave you with a word of benediction but let's let's pray together father in heaven we uh come to you what a heavy text what a weighty thing for us to consider we are grateful that we 
are part of your new covenant. We are so grateful that our sins have already been dealt with. That even if we start to give in to sedition, that when we start to rebel against you, we are grateful that you have already punished those sins upon the cross and that you have granted us brothers and sisters to help us see that. Help us see the sin that we may even miss or excuse ourselves. God, may you help us to be courageous to confront sin. May we be compassionate as we do. May we be gracious. May we point people to the cross, not just to our anger or our disappointment. And may we know your mercy even through each other. May you preserve this church. May you preserve each and every one of us. And may you be honored by what we sing. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.